the clicker is working. Okay. So I'm going to talk to you guys today about businesses because what I do is I serve businesses. I spend a lot of time in New York. I spend some time in Europe and now I live in Singapore. So a lot of what I'll bring to you is a little bit of the experience from Asia and the so-called emerging markets. But before we go on to that, I want to talk about why Asia is so optimistic about AI. You know, when you look in the West and you look in America and even in Singapore, which is kind of a developed country, you find a lot of angst and um, trepidation about AI. And rightly so. There are issues there that we must grapple with. But if you start stepping out outside these very advanced countries, you find in India, in Bangladesh, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Nigeria, and Latin America, a lot of excitement because they feel that every decade or so, a new technology comes that gives them the opportunity to leapfrog. And that's why Prime Minister Modi here is saying, hey, India, we lost the chance of the Industrial Revolution, let's take AI and leapfrog with big data. And it's not only India, right? Most people say, I say the race has just begun. A lot of people say the race has already been won by China. If it was between China and the US, a lot of people debate that China has invested so much in artificial intelligence that in fact, it is going to take the lead. More and more AI patents are coming out of China. And China has a three-year plan from the very chips that you make that would process computational AI to the high school books on AI that it's made mandatory, to the policemen and women that it is now equipping with new goggle glasses that have facial recognition in them to help spot criminals and terrorist activity, China is investing a great deal in AI. And of course, so are countries, more and more countries. I spent uh, a couple of months last fall in Germany, in Berlin, and uh, I was happy to see finally this year that Germany now has announced an AI strategy. In May, I was in France at VivaTech, which is the largest tech conference there, and President Macron talked again and again about their AI strategy, which is very much about putting humanity and ethics at its core as well. But what does it all mean? Right, what does it really mean for us as business women, businessmen, individuals? So one version is the Black Panther version, right? Which is like, I saw the movie, it looks awesome, you know, it's all magic. Or maybe closer to home, we all read Wired magazine. We saw AlphaGo being defeated, that the Go champion being defeated by DeepMind's AI. And then the master, he kept saying, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. He, it was such an unexpected move. That is also AI. But then in Germany, we also talk a lot about the fourth industrial revolution. And in that is also AI. 
But if you talk about the majority of people, such as those that were interviewed in the UK here, they don't really know, like, what does it really mean? I don't know how I feel about it. I'm kind of optimistic. Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? And I think in some ways, we give away our agency by removing ourselves and watching it like a sci-fi movie. So what I'm hoping to do with some case studies today is to make it more realistic and to show us, all of us, that actually we each, regardless of how technical we are, have a role to play in AI. So one of the things that AI does is personalization. Right? It observes micro behaviors in people, hopefully getting that data in an ethical and legal manner, and it gives people the right information at the right time. And we're used to this. Facebook does this, Netflix does this, Google does it all the time. If you Google Syria, and you Google Syria, and I Google Syria, it's likely all three of us will get different results. Or maybe all 1,000 of us will get different results. Because it's personalizing even the search based on our history. And Netflix has really become the company that has overtaken Hollywood's imagination and that of the world through its use of personalized recommendations that it makes all the time. And I don't know how many of you love Netflix, but I'm definitely a Netflix junkie, and I watch a lot of Netflix, and I'm often very impressed by the recommendations that they make, a lot of which are done mining a lot of my behavior of browsing the web, browsing the different um, movies, the different episodes, et cetera. And it has not only saved them a lot of money, but it has generated a huge amount of business for them. Again, this is not new. According to some estimates, 35% of Amazon's sales, Amazon.com sales, come from the recommendations at the bottom that are constantly telling you that you should buy this or other people have been buying this. And if you're like me, you're always buying more than you go there for. Um, but also in China, Taobao or Tmall has one day where it has a big sale. And on that 24-hour period, it generates 6.7 billion individual pages. And each of them are personalized to the person who's coming. And this leads to a 20% higher conversion rate. So personalization really does lead to greater conversion for businesses. And the case study that I'm going to give you is we tend to associate all this with corporations. And so in Dubai, the government of Dubai decided to do something that would make civil life easier for its citizens. It basically took all the different interactions you need to have with the government, like um, applying for a marriage license, getting a passport renewed, paying your tolls. It integrated it all in one place. And then it found that it still didn't have enough engagement. And it was a real bummer to them, because they had done all this integration work. They had put together everything. So it's kind of like saying, I've built something great. I don't know why people don't come to it or like it. And they asked us to come and think of some ways to increase customer engagement. And we said the following. 
Why are you treating every citizen the same way? Everybody goes to the site, they see the same thing. Yet, every citizen is now used to also being a digital native, to getting things that are relevant to them. And when they interact with the government, governments also should think in ways that reduce the waiting time of citizens, that gives them relevant information, and that dynamically presents a face to them. So that every time they go, they actually get personalized information. Now here, the government has a lot of data. It's its own data, like its ID, its digital footprint. It can do some personality tests. It can get some social media sentiments. And all of this can then go into an AI engine. And remember, the government owns all or most of this data or others publicly available. So it uses it within its regulatory framework. And it begins to then give personalized recommendations. This is Fatma. It could also be Haroon. It, it doesn't mean that all women are married with housewives with children. It just means that she so happens to fill that persona, which is a data-driven persona, which shows this is a behavior of someone who has children. When she goes to drop her children using this app, it automatically tells her that there is a new government subsidy for college education nearby. And that is relevant and interesting to her, and that if she wants to, it gives her directions to it. It also tells her, because the government wants to encourage more healthy behavior, that it has also offered some subsidized yoga classes in her neighborhood. If it's a young man who's a tech entrepreneur, or a young woman who's a tech entrepreneur, she's much more interested in knowing about residency visas or changes in immigration law. That's what's relevant to her. That's what she wants to learn about. She wants to know the big conference that the government is subsidizing. So that is what appears on his dashboard. The idea was give citizens also the right information, constantly give them what they need, and that makes for happier, Citizens would like bureaucracy, paperwork, and time-consuming paperwork spent with government. So we signed a prototype with uh, Sheikh Hamdan at the back, and now we're looking and talking to Smart Dubai about scaling it. Remember, all AI projects always start with a small prototype. So a lot of people tell me often, it's just really overwhelming for me. I don't know where to start. And the answer is, start small. It's basically like any other agile method that you would employ to start something. Now, automation. I know there was some talk about automation also. But AI does a lot in automation, right? And the idea is it gives consumers quick, efficient, and targeted customer service. One of the huge revenue areas of the Philippines is the business process outsourcing that the Philippines does. And it does well because it's one of the few places for the English-speaking world where English is also spoken well. But yet, that entire industry is now under pressure. Most CEOs have a KPI of 50 to 70% of their customer service to be done by artificial intelligence agents. So what does that mean? Well, it means that, according to some predictions, by 2020, 85% of all your customer interactions will be handled without a human agent. 
and that the idea is could you actually predict or actually preempt somebody's customer service questions by knowing what they may need and so save them time and effort and efficiency, give them more efficiency. I hate being at the other end of a phone call asked to be press, press two, then press three, then press four, and then have a long conversation with a human agent. Leaving aside concerns, which I'll talk about later, about what does that human agent do when he loses his job, let's put the customer first. Let's think about what the customer wants. They want the right information at the right time in the shortest possible manner. Now, one of Asia's largest telco companies came to us. And they said, we get thousands and thousands of customer emails a month. People are telling us they're leaving the country, they want to switch to another plan. They have technical questions. Can you please help us a way to understand, using AI, what people are saying, so that instead of them having to wait for an answer, maybe 24 hours, maybe if they're lucky, 12 hours, it automatically sends them that information right there, right then. And so then we did another POC. And I'm going to do a little bit of geeky sidetracking here, but I think it's kind of worth it. But this is basically what happens when you're processing information. You have a lot of emails. You have to clean the data. The data is very, very important. And then you extract features from it. And these features, all these different AI techniques by which you understand what is this person saying and in what context. And when you have a large trove of historical customer service emails and requests, you're able to mine all of that, and you're able to run models like this on it. So when we were running models, we actually ran 12 to 13 different AI models on it. And then these were the two that were the most successful at understanding a longer probability distribution for the best case, about 85% of the intent in an email. So it's never perfect, continues to learn, but this is the process. This particular process took us about two to three weeks. It's a down and dirty pilot that can be done, but it immediately shows value to the business stakeholders, and that very soon afterwards you can start testing it on a subset of your users. Customer service by text and email and chatbots is kind of old news now, even though most companies are getting to it. The new thing is actually speech to text. People don't even want to write. People just want to say what they want. And so Flipkart just acquired, which is one of the largest, the Amazon, one of the Amazon equivalents in India, just acquired live.ai, and precisely because it has very good speech to text recognition. And I think the interesting thing with speech-to-text when you go to Asia is that there are hundreds of languages. And so one of the big opportunities in Asia is localization. And I know that um, Marco just spoke about localization, but localization is also something in AI as well. How do you localize how your agent is speaking to you real time so that he can be understood? A lot of exciting work happening over there. Small teams. The live.ai was just a 20-member team. We are also a small team, but you can still achieve a great deal with it. Um, 
I can't say I feel totally comfortable with this myself, but I do know that this is a trend, so I have to share it with you guys. But this is also when somebody is using a camera. Um, you know, if, the, if they're open to it, then the AI automatically is doing facial recognition and analysis uh, and trying to understand the mood of the person. And in understanding the mood of the person, again, is uh, providing information to the artificial intelligence agent. I think a lot of this, even AI experts such as myself, find it difficult to come to terms with some of these things that are possible. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, these are some things that we'll find more and more happening in some of the customer service automation that we see. This is something that I really like, which is how do you use AI to develop systems that care more about your customer than about your company? It's very easy to always say, I'm very customer-centric. But to be honest, nine out of 10 times, we're not. We're very egocentric. At best, we are our own company-centric, our team-centric. And, um, and I think what AI and disruption does is, is kind of forces us back to think about the customer. So here's an example that is very big at the moment in Asia. Asia has many, 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 like all over the world, traditional taxi companies, traditional bus services. But now with the advent of the Grabs and the Ubers and bike sharing and others in the world, there's a great deal of pressure on these companies. So there's a great deal of pressure on Deutsche Bahn equivalents in Asia. And this is a very large transportation company in Singapore that came to us and said, we don't know what to do. We're losing our customers. How can we give them something, something new that would retain our customers? So we said, okay, stop thinking about your own story and start thinking about the customer. Why do people take public transportation versus not take public transportation. Well, a lot of people in Asia buy cars because it's hot. And one of the huge problems is that even though we all love in smart cities to think about Copenhagen and Berlin and how everybody's cycling, it's very, very hard to do that in Asia and the hot countries because by the time you get off your bike and into work, um, you, know, you are completely drenched. And so the idea was people own cars as a result. Even walking to the bus station is a big problem. Walking off the bus station is a big problem. So, and they were sick of using multiple apps. First, you get in the taxi to go to the bus station. Then you maybe take a bike if the weather is good. So we told them, think about the customer. They just want to deal with one app, one product. And all they want to do is they want to know, I want to go from A to B and I want the app to tell me how to get there and automatically book and reserve if I need to take a taxi and then get on a car, in a, in a train, and then get off and get on a scooter. I want it all booked. I don't want to have to worry about it. And if that's what you want to make, you want them to give the, have the ability to pay for it as well. And so that's what we asked them to build. This is intermodal transportation. This is when you just go to one place, you have everything, you can pay for everything. And the app is very important here because what the app does is it allows you to optimize 
the best option per user. And you can actually say things down the road, such as, I want the least cost. I want to walk five miles a week, make sure that happens. It becomes your transport assistant, in a way, that's making you reach all your goals. And AI is necessary to mine all this data and to personalize the options that it gives to you. And what it did for this traditional company that was so focused on physical assets, like trains and buses and taxis, and forced them to think in a digital platform that was inclusive, not only of their own companies, but that of the ecosystem as well, because you don't want to restrict what the customer has, was a real innovative jump for them. And it was very successful for them to do that, because it was a very successful pilot, and now has actually spun out as an independent company. But a lot of this data exchange that's happening at the background is important to realize that the app looks simple and beautiful, but at the back there's technical negotiation and then there's legal negotiation on data exchange and what happens. So these are some of the things that we integrated. Buses, trains, bike sharing, whatever a person wants to get on, hop on, they can easily do that using just one app called Mobility X. And one of the things that was great was that for the e-scooter company, we were able to tell them that when on certain days, in certain places, we think customers would take e-scooters, but you haven't put them there. And when we told them to put them at that location, their usage went up by 50%. This kind of micro insight into mobility patterns is not possible without data mining and AI. And this is, of course, a lot more information on predictive congestion and predictive transportation that you can provide people. So I've kind of given you a you know, business example, I've given you a transport example, a citizen services example. All of them are essentially using artificial intelligence to become more human-centric or customer-centric for citizens. And then, of course, there's always a struggle for all of us in businesses, right? How are we going to find new people? How are we going to expand our businesses? Who are our new customers? And again, I feel AI is useful over here. One of the saddest things in the world is, for Asians, that we go to all these fancy restaurants, and I'm sure you guys do as well, but 80% of the supply chain, food supply chain, comes from these poor farmers. They live between $1 and $4 a day. And you know what's worse? The injustice that's so worse is that they are so vulnerable to risks, to pest infestations, soil erosions, floods, typhoons. If any of these happens, the whole farmer's crop is gone, his livelihood, the people dependent on him, he loses his income. Typhoons, 25 typhoons a year in the Philippines. These plant croppers destroy millions of dollars of rice. Yet, the farmer has no way of knowing if there's a pest infestation in the nearby village. And then when I asked an insurance company, why don't you give these poor farmers insurance against typhoons? They said, Aisha, how can we do that? 
all of them, there are hundreds, and th hundreds of thousands of these farmers, every time a typhoon happens, they call us, they say some X percent of their field was destroyed, and how can we validate that? We have to send people, and we don't want to hire tens of thousands of people. So this is a classic problem, a very, very fertile business case for microinsurance for farmers all over the world, and yet there is no way to right now do it. So we decided, along with other similar-minded people uh, in various other startups in the world, to use remote sensing data. If you use the eye in the sky, and satellite imagery is becoming cheaper and cheaper, it offers you an entirely new wealth of data. Using different kinds of layers of imagery, you know from the thermal footprint of a nearby village there are worms on the crops. You know with another kind of spectral imagery how much of the field was destroyed. And when you do that, you can automatically process their claims for insurance. So this is now being used uh, by a variety of companies. We are still working on our own version of this. It also looks at the health of the farmer, the mobile phone being key over here to give the farmer information and also for him to know where to put his pesticide because constantly it is being observed and validated by satellite imagery. I would encourage everyone to think out of the box, think about new data sources. When you think about new data sources, you can think about new ways to serve not only your existing customers, but potentially customers that have been written off by larger companies because they don't have uh, the skill set to rethink how to serve them. So this is typical. Uh, it's all about data, data, data. Here you have seven, you know, seven different types, six different types of data that you would use. Satellite data, meteorology data, the mobile data of the farmer. And the farmer is not moving around for a couple of days, and you know he goes every morning to his fields. That means he's probably sick. And so it's in the interest of the insurance company and the farmer that the insurance company sends a doctor to him. Um, these are small ways in which you can stabilize the income of the farmer, but also um, help make a business case for the insurance company. And of course, we talk about all this AI, but you know they can't read most of them. So actually, the best way to communicate with them is through voice messages. I think this is all very interesting. It requires us to know AI. And yet, the classic question is, do we have the skills to use it? What happens to people who don't have AI skills? Does that mean they're irrelevant? Because everything that I talked about actually has a core of data analytics in it. Well, I think Singapore is a great place to look. Singapore is a small country. In 53 years, it has gone from being a swamp land to actually one of Asia's leading countries. And they have no natural resources. Their biggest resource is their people. So if you think of one country that's obsessed with talent and skills and talent development, it's Singapore. Which is why Singapore's deputy prime minister said, what if jobs and skills have an expiry date? Guys, what about this? Let's think like this. 
And they had something in mind, many industries, but in particular, they had the banking industry in mind. So Vikram Pandit says 30% of banking jobs are going to be cut. Deutsche Bank CEO, I believe, said 50% of his staff is not really needed or will not be needed in the future. So what happens to a place like Singapore? A place like Singapore, which is the financial capital of Asia, one of the financial capitals along with Hong Kong, it has to deal with the fact that banks are different now. How are they different? You know, when I was on Wall Street, there are whole departments of researchers and traders whose only job is to try and figure out what will happen if there's a war in Syria. What will happen if there is a flood in Indonesia? What will happen if there's a typhoon in Florida? And now a company like Kensho, which is an AI financial services-based company, just got bought for $550 million because it allows you to literally, in a Google search bar, write which cement stocks go up the most when a Category 3 hurricane hits Florida. And then it goes through all 65 million combinations of historical data and gives you some options. So that means all of those research analysts are not needed as much. So Singapore had to think about all its banking employees. And the way that it did this was, it said we have two choices. Number one, we put our head in the sand like an ostrich and hope this all blows over. Or number two, we disrupt ourselves. We know AI is coming. We are going to encourage it. We are going to give grants. But at the same time that we encourage AI fintech startups, we are going to make sure our bankers are taken care of. We will put them through education programs. And they have started hundreds of these programs. And the idea is not that everybody should become a coder like me. The idea is that a team is diverse, and so you need to know just enough to collaborate with them, to collaborate with an AI person, engineer like myself. And I cannot do anything in anybody's field without somebody who has domain expertise. And so I think this is really important. The team is still made up of a variety of skills designers, social scientists, project managers, customer service uh, experts. All of these are needed. Now you just have to make some space for your AI and data scientists as well. And so this is an example of a course. It's an online course subsidized uh, under the Government of Singapore's Act. And I was also one of the lecturers. There are many better ones than me in it. And all it does is, it says these are the basics of AI you need to learn so that you can apply it to your field in banking. And thousands of banks are now taking this on. Thousands of employees of banks, sorry. And Singapore even went further. And it said, everyone will give you $500 each to all of you. Go and take any course that you want. And it did not say to its citizens, you must take AI courses or data courses. It says take any course, because it wanted them to get in the habit of lifelong learning 
And it knew that at some point they would run into the need for technology and AI and data, and then they would partner with the right person. So I think that's very, very important. And what I'd like to end with is then, how do we make sure our values are in the AI that we build? Now that we have our teams together, the diverse teams, we have our businesses that are targeting certain kinds of micro behaviors to better serve customers, optimize operations. Well, we know that there has been a great deal of distrust based on what happened with Cambridge Analytica in Facebook. And one of the most horrible things, which are not addressed, this was just about privacy and manipulation, is bias. I'll give you two examples of bias. The first example is when Google was training its image recognition system, it was looking for people to train it on. Because you, know, you need data for the AI to learn something on. And it, so it looked around at all its PhD grads, and they were all white men, so it used that to do it. And then when somebody who's dark brown, like me, or an African-American came, it would tag it as a gorilla. So you know, this is a typical problem of bias. Another problem of bias. Everybody's now talking about the fact, wouldn't it be good to have human resources recruitment done by AI engines? And so one company tried it, and lo and behold, the AI engine started picking only the men. And so the head of HR thought, wow, it's such a smart engine. It must mean men are better for these jobs. But that was not the case. Historically, the company had had a bias in hiring men. Remember, the AI right now is just mimicking human behavior. That's why it's so good at automation. That's why it's not good at teamwork. It can just mimic narrow versions of it. So that bias is very, very important to keep in mind when you're building AI. And I always say it is very easy for all of us to talk about ethics. But it's very difficult to put your money where your mouth is. Everybody was bad, bad Facebook, bad, bad Facebook. And yes, they were irresponsible. But when Facebook made an effort to add more privacy, you know what happened to their stock price? It's the biggest dip in its history, one of the largest in the history of the stock market. Because investors were actually not pleased because it meant that the news feed would not be as personalized or as easily um, malleable. So I think we have to stand up for what we believe in. GDPR has done that to a degree. I think Europe has a great emphasis on human values. Asia is learning from that. It's a bit of a wild west right now, where I'm coming from. But regardless, unless we put the human face on AI, all of this becomes a little bit relevant, because ultimately, if our idea is to change business to serve our customers, we can't do it by losing the trust of them at the same time. So I hope you'll join me in kind of using AI to build better businesses and more innovative businesses. And I encourage all of you to come to Asia and see some of the fun stuff that we're doing over there. Thank you.